Welcome to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. Since 1997, Scriptorium has helped companies manage, structure, organize, and distribute content in an efficient way. In this episode, we talk about unusual outputs from data sources. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gretel Kinsey. And I'm Simon Bate. And today we're going to take a look at some different outputs from DITA that aren't very common or widely used. Uh, so I think the, the best place to kick off here is to talk about what is commonly used. You know, what are the sort of more typical outputs that you see from DITA sources? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can actually divide this into two areas. And one is the output formats, and then the other is the, um, the output type itself. And so... You know, uh, among the usual data outputs, we have things like manuals, guides, essentially anything that's paged. And there we're, we're predominantly talking about PDFs. And uh, then there's um, others, other outputs which are more collections of HTML pages, whether it be websites or whatever. Now, um, then there are the formats themselves. And so, of course, the two, um, the two groups that I've listed here we have a, there's a PDF output and HTML output. Yeah, and those are ones that are uh, you know, kind of delivered standard with the Data Open Toolkit. And one thing that we see a lot at Scriptorium is companies that ask us to come in and build customized versions of these outputs for their data content. So we've had a lot of companies that want one or both of these output types and sometimes multiple versions. So they might have uh, you know, one PDF transform that handles their manuals. They might have one that handles their data sheets or some other smaller file type. And then they might have HTML for all of their content as well so that they can deliver everything across the board in different ways. And, and data sheets themselves are an interesting uh, jumping off point for a whole for a discussion about unusual outputs because while I consider manuals and guides to be fairly standard output, data sheets often are a, an odd duck. There's often often you have uh, a mapping where you have one data topic equals one data sheet. Um, that's not necessarily true, but that's what we see a lot of the time. But um, data sheets, because of the density of the information that's in it, um, require often a specialization or a lot of output class usage. And um, with that comes real uh, a great deal of author training or buy-in. So anybody writing a data topic that's going to be converted to a data sheet has to know right from the start that that is one of the, the, the data sheet is a possible output for this content. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, that is a good jumping off point into talking about some more uh, unusual or not so typical outputs that you might get from your data sources. Um, and I want to start off that discussion by talking about some of the benefits of these less typical outputs. Uh, what might make a company say, okay, we've got a real case here to go from DITA to something a little bit uh, more unusual than PDF or HTML? Well, often we find that the clients want to do this because they're, they're using their DITA already to create what we consider a, a usual output. But in addition, for one reason or another, they have a requirement for generating some other kind of output. And part of the desire is to use the same data sources to, to generate both the standard output and to go to this some um, specialized or unusual output format. Absolutely. And uh, I think some of the examples that we're going to get into and talk about uh, more in depth, one of them is something that we've actually covered quite a bit on 
the podcast, on our blog, and even in uh, our Learning Ditta Live presentations, and that is going from Ditta to InDesign. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that we'll do is include in the show notes for this episode some links to all of the, the different content that we've produced around that. Um, one of our consultants, Jake Campbell, has done a lot of work on Ditta to InDesign, and that's definitely one of those sort of unusual output formats from Ditta. But the use case there is that, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, the, the, the Ditta content was going to those usual outputs like PDF or HTML, but there were a few types of documents. Uh, you know, maybe you've got data sheets or maybe you've got a marketing slick or something that needs to be a little bit more highly formatted, highly designed and customized before it's actually, you know, sent to the printer or posted on the website or what have you. And in that case, taking your data source into InDesign and doing some of those really specific tweaks to the formatting that you can't get from something more standardized like a PDF transform is a really good way to do that and not compromise your design. And so that's kind of one of the, the possible use cases for going to a, a sort of less typical output format is if you, for the most part, want to have a standard templatized design for your PDF output, but maybe you've got this one set of data sheets or something that does need that extra finessing in InDesign, then you have that transform that takes your data sources to, Indes to InDesign, and then that way uh, you still have all of your data in a single source and you don't mm -hmm. have sort of disconnected content being done over here in InDesign and then all the rest of it in a different repository in Ditta. You still have that shared repository single source. Uh, so that's a really, a really big benefit there. Um, so I want to get into now talking about some examples of unusual outputs from Ditta. And Simon, I know you've done a lot of work on transforms for these. And so mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to just ask about some of the different ones you've done and uh, and what that kind of process has involved. Mm -hmm. Well, one of them to, that we can talk about right away um, is sort of usual, and that is EPUB. And EPUB, of course, uh, this is a standard. Uh, now this is what version three of the standard. And essentially what it means is taking HTML output and then packaging it together with a number of other XML files that, that document, that describe the structure of your EPUB. And so in there, um, as, with, as with a lot of things based in HTML, most of the work is actually in building the files that describe the thing. Um, we've already got the transforms prepared for doing the HTML transform, usually it requires not much change for going to an EPUB, uh, sometimes some CSS work, but um, for the most part, the, the actual work is in doing the, um, as I say, the packaging. And with EPUB, that's, that gets to be one of the problems because I've found in working in EPUB, it's a very frustrating standard to work with. So you mentioned that, that EPUB is a little bit of a, a difficult output type to work with. What are some of the challenges that are, that are involved with developing a, a DITA to EPUB output? Um, a lot of them are actually in the sequencing. Uh, there's a, a particular um, XML file that describes the order in which things come. And it's, it's been a little while since I've touched it, so I can't remember exactly where the problems lay. But there were issues with um, particularly dealing with the front matter of the EPUB, trying to get a title page in, 
trying to make sure the table of contents fit in and um, other uh, pagination things around that. That was, in particular, the, the really hard part. Flowing the text, most of the text actually is very straightforward. So some of the problems come with things like titles of the content. And for a normal structure of content with various, um, various nested topics with titles in them, those will fall out okay. But when you start introducing things like a, um, a topic head in a map, there's not much provision within the EPUB standard for a title to exist without any content below it. Um, so you have a title, then you go straight to the title of the next thing down. That's rather difficult to deal with in EPUB. So it sounds like you know, there are difficulties with regard to how EPUB renders the data structure, but then one thing that I can remember from testing uh, EPUB output as well is that uh, there's a bit of a challenge for making sure that EPUB displays consistently across different mobile devices as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, so I know that, that that's a big consideration if you're thinking about EPUB output is uh, you know, how much control do you want over how it displays on, uh, you know, an iPad versus a Kindle versus any other sort of e-reader or mobile device or tablet, because it's really, really difficult to ensure it looks the same. And I would say probably impossible to yeah. make sure it and, looks the and, same. And not just across uh, different devices. There are also a number of different readers out there for um, on some platforms. On, on Macintosh and on PC, there are a number of different readers um, on some uh, less restrictive tablets, say Android, there are a number of readers you can find. For Apple, there are a handful of readers. The Apple Reader itself has its own quirks, and so when you test it, you have to uh, you have to look out for all of those things. Kindle uh, actually brings up a whole different set of problems because the Kindle format is not quite the same as the EPUB three standard or EPUB two even. Um, so you have to make additional changes, additional modifications to, uh, to go to Kindle. Yeah, and I think those are all really important things to think about. Um, and, and sort of with all of these unusual outputs that we're talking about, there are, um, you know, sort of different risks and different considerations to make sure that you think about before you uh, start building mm -hmm. those outputs. That's right. It's not just the transform, it's the testing and that can, for some of these formats, that can consume great no amount of resources. Absolutely. Uh, so what's another unusual output that you've worked on? Well, I think uh, it, through this discussion, we're, we'll be uh, diving deeper and deeper into weirder and weirder outputs. <laughs> and so the next one, again, is can be expected to be a normal output in some sense, and that is LMS, or learning management systems. So often people want to go either from uh, normal, normal data, that is topic, concept, uh, task, and reference, or even um, the learning and training specialization into uh, content that's consumed by a learning management system. And there, of course, there are, there are dozens and dozens of learning management systems. So uh, there's a, a wealth of experience to be had there, and we haven't even touched uh, much of it at all, really. One thing that's used a lot in learning management systems is the SCORM standard. The SCORM essentially uh, allows you to build a, a package which is transportable supposedly across learning management systems. Although our experience with SCORM is 
the implementation or actually putting the content out into SCORM, actually you have to have the learning management system or the JavaScript that's driving it in mind while you're building the SCORM. Yeah, so. and, uh, and one use case that I wanted to bring up with regard to learning content going into a learning management system is actually learningdata.com. Um, That's right. And that is, as most mm. of you probably know, Scriptorium's free e-learning resource for data training. Uh, we have actually, or I should say Simon, has developed the process that takes content from data into the LMS that we use for that. That's correct. And so for uh, learning data, we used the learning and training specialization for, the, for all the sources. In fact, if you want to, you can go into Git and uh, access learning and training sources yourselves and see what, what we did with it. Now, moving it into the um, learning management system was an interesting thing because first we had to find a learning management system. We found one that's actually a plug-in for WordPress. And so WordPress itself brings up its own, its own issues. So the, the transforms themselves, we had to do uh, several things. One is we had to figure out how the learning management system fit into WordPress and what the files looked like for that. Now, when you're looking for learning management systems, if you're going to be doing anything like this, one important consideration when you're looking at the learning management system is to think about the import, the import limitations or whatever facilities there are on import for the LMS. And it turned out for us, what we needed to do was to craft some files in a particular form and then be able to import them into WordPress. And so a lot of the work there really was uh, reverse engineering. We took a look at uh, WordPress import and export files and found the, um, the important parts, the pieces that we needed to preserve and what we could pull in from metadata from the topics, what we actually had to specify when we were doing the import. And uh, so then we created our transform to take our data and transform into the XML, which we can then import into WordPress. Now, in addition to the, uh, um, in addition to the actual topics themselves, the learning management system managed the questions. And uh, if I'm sure many of you have been in learning data and you've experienced the uh, quizzes at the end of each of the sections. And those quizzes are, are managed by the learning management system. And there's an entirely separate file format that we had to come up with for that. Um, we had to, again, reverse engineer how the learning management system needed its um, question. And then there's a, also a complex process that we go through to um, first import the topics themselves into uh, WordPress, and then a separate process for importing the questions into the learning management system and then tying the whole thing up and uh, tying it up with a bow. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got a situation where uh, you have content creators, let's say in the training department, they're working in DITA and they need to uh, you know, create output that goes to a learning management system. And let's say you've also got, uh, you know, your technical content is sharing that same DITA source and maybe, um, you know, some other different departments, they've all got content in that same data repository. What are some of the considerations that the training team would need to keep in mind when it comes to choosing an LMS so that that, uh, you know, that output can be as efficient as possible? 
You know, that's that's kind of hard. I think uh, a lot of it gets back to my, my initial statement that the import facility has to be there. Mm-hmm. Much of the issue with the learning management system itself is just mapping from the data into what you can move into the, the learning management system. With data, uh, you know, it's incredibly flexible, so we can generate almost any type of output that we want to with it. I can't think of any limitations actually in the authoring because almost everything has to be done in the transform itself. Now, once you've selected the learning management system, that selection process may come with certain limitations, um, certain things that are possible to do in the learning management system, some things that are not. And that then is going to feed back into what the writers can do or what your content creators can do. Yeah, and that's why it's so important, I think, to keep up that uh, communication amongst everybody that's going to be using your data sources and contributing to it and making sure that what one team does doesn't affect something that another team is going to do in a negative way and Mm -hmm. everything's working together in sort of this data ecosystem. Um, So speaking of training materials and training content, you've also developed another output type, which is data to slides. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that actually falls into two different groups. There was the initial uh, attempt that I made uh, a number of years ago. In a, um, as part of my work here, I do a lot of training. And so I thought, well, the training content itself ought to be in data. That's fine for uh, putting together the sheets that I work from when I'm doing training. But then we'd also want those same materials to be presented in slides um, for on, on screen while I'm, uh, while I'm doing the training. It, it occurred to me that I could write a transform. HTML seemed to be the obvious choice since it was uh, fairly flexible and could be used almost anywhere. So we can take this content and transform it and I can generate my slides and I can generate my uh, handouts and other training materials all from the same content. There were some things that I had to do, and this actually will get into the second uh, aspect of doing uh, training or slide material, and that is there has to be a system somehow of indicating what you do want to have on slides and what you don't want to have on slides. And with uh, with my, my first slide transform, what I was able to do is make certain rules about where things appeared in bulleted lists, um, whether it was in a paragraph within the list item or not, um, and then add some output classes to say this is not for the slides or this is not for um, the printed output. And then using those rules, I could generate uh, materials for both. So the second uh, effort onto um, doing slides is a little bit more complex and this was at a client request. They had a bunch of training materials and they needed to have it not just as handouts, but they wanted to use PowerPoint. We've had, uh, and we will talk about going to Word a little later, but we've had some previous experience in trying to go to Word or Office packages. And this time around, it occurred to me there were two things. And one is my experience was in dealing with almost anything in Office, Hierarchy is mostly, or hierarchy is ignored. You have to throw out the hierarchies, that is, you have to flatten your structure. But the other thing was that um, in our other effort, we went directly to the XML, the Office XML format, and that turned out to be a really, really hard thing to do. And so this time around, it occurred to me, well, Microsoft Office has a great 
VBS, that is Visual Basic Library, for um, loading things into uh, PowerPoint files. So what I did was uh, created something as a two-step process. And the first process is to take the data and to flatten the structure. And while I'm flattening, I can do a lot of pre-processing. I can identify things. And the, um, the output of the pre-process is essentially built with slides in mind. So as I'm building this out, I can build out decks of slides from the content and tag things accordingly. This output format, by the way, is not XML, and I'll get into that in a little bit later. But um, so with the output format, I can then put all the content that's going to go out, and then I take that output format and run a Visual Basic script on that on that output file on that flat file the visual basic then actually finds the PowerPoint template opens the template as a new document and then starts to load content into that uh, into that template slide by slide based on the content of the flat file because it's based on the content of the flat file and because I found parsing limitations very, very restrictive in Visual Basic, I just used a plain text file that has some simple delimiters. It would be really nice. It would be much, much nicer if I could have used XML. But unfortunately, I couldn't. I looked into a number of different ways of using XML in uh, Visual Basic. It's just not possible. So I, par I can parse the file with my simple rules in Visual Basic and load it all into the slides. So one of the other things that I found as I was uh, working in Visual Basic was that there are actual differences between how Visual Basic behaves in Windows and how it behaves in Macintosh. I do a lot of my development work in Macintosh, but uh, the client was in Windows and we knew that was going to be an important target for them. So we started testing in Windows and found that things that I had developed in Macintosh just did not work under Windows. And interestingly, while I was trying to develop some other things in the uh, process itself, I found the, the lesson back the other way. I was looking, did Google searches, trying to see how I could do a, how I, in Visual Basic I could create a, um, a file selection dialog, say, to, to find the file that we're going to be loading into the template. And I could find lots of things about how to do it on Windows, and uh, I thought, well, it should work just the same on Macintosh. It turned out it didn't. So on Macintosh, I actually had to write a whole separate routine for doing for uh, locating the file and loading that file into the script. Yeah, and I think that really gets back to some of the points that we made earlier when we were talking about EPUB and you know testing across different platforms and different readers, and then same thing with uh, you know with going to something like SCORM and testing across different LMSs, you know, it's going to be different across different systems, operating systems as well. And so that's something to keep in mind, uh, you know, if you have to build one of these types of outputs to, uh, you know, consider, are you just using Windows or just using Macintosh? Or do you maybe have a use case for both? And that's all going to play an important role in uh, you know kind of how much time and how many resources are going to be involved in developing an output like this. So earlier you mentioned that you had uh, done some work for not just PowerPoint but for Word as well. So tell us a little bit about that and uh, kind of how a data to Word transform works. Right, and to recap, what I was saying initially was that we had gone uh, from data straight to the Word docx. XML format, 
which turned out to be very, very difficult to work with. It's very, very difficult to test, very difficult to get things right. It, uh, it expects things in a very particular order, and it expects all the content to be flattened out. We were successful. We managed to complete the project going to Word, but if we were to do it again, we would certainly use the Office libraries and again use Visual Basic. And the nice thing is now that we've got a format that we can use for flattening the file, the text file that I've developed for PowerPoint will actually work very well for Word. So in the future, if we need to go to Word, we're all set and ready to go with that. And that's really great because I, I think, you know, it is pretty, I don't know if common's the right word, but I think it's, uh, you know, pretty smart if you have got, uh, you know, a lot of people using Microsoft Office products that you might want to have, you know, an output that goes to Word and an output that goes to PowerPoint um, that would, you know, both kind of use that, that visual basic uh, mm -hmm. you know, starting point. So I think that is, uh, that makes a lot of sense if that's kind of a need at your company that, you know that you've got a lot of people that need to take that data content into various Microsoft Office programs, um, that having that visual basic beginning point is, uh, is really a solid plan. Yeah. There's actually a third Office product, which uh, leads actually into the, the next area of things that I was going to discuss, and that is Excel. Mm -hmm. Because Excel, of course, um, spreadsheet is nothing more than a, a database in a matrix. And uh, we've done a number of things converting our data content to database formats of one kind or another. But some of the other formats that we've gone to for database, they're all fairly much the same. And because they're all text formats, fairly easy to go to. Um, so that includes comma-separated value files. So there we've often had people who say, well, we need a table converted to a comma-separated value file so that then we can load it into a database or we can load it into Excel. We've also done a number of things using JSON as our output format. JSON is, is very nice because it's a nicely structured format. It's a little bit more forgiving than, say, comma-separated values are, particularly when you've got content that might have commas in it. Also, JSON is uh, readily interpreted by a number of uh, tools, including JavaScript. In fact, JSON was based around JavaScript, and for that reason, it's a very, very useful uh, format to create data in. Almost all these, when we, when we need to go to a database, usually we're starting with data content in tables. And it may be a pricing table that's in a data sheet, and that it also needs to go into some, some database or other. Often it's lists of standards, lists of product availability, what are the serial numbers associated with the product with particular specifications, and those, those types of you know, very catalog-like things. So we've talked a lot about uh, taking data content into uh, you know, some of these Microsoft-based products like PowerPoint and Word and Excel, but what about uh, going in a, a different and I guess more visual direction and uh, taking data into SVGs or scalable vector graphics? That's, uh, that's actually an interesting thing and, a, and a, for me a very fun thing to do. I like playing with graphics, I like playing with SVG. And SVG itself is nice because it's an XML format, so we're going from DITA, which is XML, to another XML format, which is always a whole lot easier than trying to go to something else. So we've gone from DITA to SVG for a number of different output types. 
Some of them are things like uh, diagrams of uh, registers in chips. We have content in a table, and we can take that tabular content, which specifies a bit offset position, the width of the field, and uh, what's the content of that register, what's the register's name, or the, actually the field's name, and then lay those things out into a, an image that looks vaguely descriptive of the way that register appears. And this was incredibly useful to one of our clients because they had thousands and thousands of these things. And the information was extracted first from a, da from a database and then moved into XML in DITA, and then we pulled it out and were able to format this. Yeah, and I, I've seen a lot of cases too where you have um, you know parts diagrams where different pieces have to be labeled, and for localization purposes, they wanted the text to be in one layer and the image to be in another, and that's where SVGs were really really helpful. And so we've seen that as a major use case uh, for going from DITA to SVG. Um, we've also seen things like with training content, if you've got a hotspot style question um, or something where you're matching up, uh, you know, pieces of text to pieces of an image, then that's where SVGs can be really helpful as well to again, have that separation where your text is in one layer, your image is in another. And, uh, and that works, you know, for both that and for localization purposes. So there's a whole lot of benefit that you can get out of having SVGs as an, an output format. That's correct. And it, it works not just in the SVG, but actually in the data sources themselves, because we have one client where they have some massive tables that describe in detail how you put together a particular part number that describes a particular thing. And again, there are fields um, where there are values, so an A represents a yellow one and a B represents a green one and things like that. And we can take that information from the data content and create a, um, a diagram that shows, again, how, the, um, how a person making an order would put together the part number for their appropriate piece of equipment. Um, and one of the things we can do at the same time is we can generate a list on the side of what are the actual names of these things. Now, this information comes from DITA, and the DITA can start out in English as the primary language, but also the DITA then can be translated, and we can take in that translated DITA and then convert it into just the same table, but only in German or Swedish or Spanish or whatever we want to choose at that time. So we've, we've talked about uh, SVGs as uh, you know, something where you're going from DITA, which is one XML format, to another. Um, and I know that one thing that I wanted to address is you know, going from XML to something else instead of necessarily, uh, necessarily DITA to something. Are there any cases where you've just gone from XML to another format or maybe XML to XML in a similar way that you've done with SVGs? Yes, getting back to some of our earlier examples, um, we have gone from DITA to XML when dealing with training materials because, again, we're dealing with content in an LMS, and the LMS's input isn't necessarily going to be DITA. In fact, it usually isn't DITA, but uh, often the LMS will take as input content in an XML file, so we have to go to the XML file to do that. And I, I want to kind of 
attempt to wrap things up with uh, with a, a final, I guess, not just question, but set of questions or considerations around unusual outputs. And that is just what advice would you give if a company is thinking about, you know, maybe they've already got PDF or HTML or something that's more typical, but then they're thinking about adding, uh, you know, maybe data to PowerPoint or, uh, you know, data to InDesign or something that's a little bit less common. What advice would you give them regarding the time and resources involved and some of the challenges that they might come up against that they might not have encountered when they did their more typical outputs? Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's a, a great deal of crystal ball time, of course, because <laughs> What you're going to, the real problems you're going to find are when you get to uh, a brick wall. You work on something and then you find that actually there's no way to do it or it's going to be, it's going to require something different. And often that something different in data translates back into either using an output class or creating a specialization. So there are things, you know, if you can, Look at the formats, look at where you're going, and what are some of the requirements of that format, and are there going to be things that may be difficult to come to from DITA? You can do some of that work early on, but a lot of that experience, a lot of that uh, learning is going to actually occur when you're actually trying to go into into whatever format you're going to. So I would say in general, pad your estimates. Build in a lot of extra time to allow for um, dead ends allow for where you had to try, you had, you thought your implementation was going to go in one direction, but you found out eventually that you now you have to, you have to do something different for that. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I think that uh, going to something that's a less typical output does require a whole lot more time and resources for testing, mm-hmm. um, for not just testing, but testing the limits of what's possible. And, uh, and it's important to think about that and not say, oh, you know, it took such many hours to develop PDF, so it'll be about the same for InDesign. That's absolutely not the case at all. And uh, and you really have to think about, you know, what are you trying to do? What are the possible limitations that you're going to run into? What are the compromises that you're willing to make when you do run into a limitation? Because it's pretty much inevitable. And, uh, you know, how much budget, time, resources do you have to dedicate to developing mm-hmm. that output? And those are all really important things to think about when you're still on the planning stage before you get too deep into it. Yeah, And that brings to mind another thing is part of your work is going to be training your authors because there's often going to be things, whether it's an output class or a specialization, where the authors are going to have to know about um, particular decisions you had to make, things they have to do, things they have to do a particular way in order to get it to work. You know, it's a, you'd, you'd like it to be just perfect that you can author anything in DITA and convert it into whatever your target format is. But the, the truth is um, you'll, you will find limitations and you'll have to work around those limitations, but then you have to communicate how do you work around those limitations to your writers. And I think that gets to a point, too, about, uh, you know, kind of what are the importance of your different outputs? Uh, You know, what's the priority for Uh you? Because if you have a very, very strong business need to go from, let's say, DITA to Word, and that's kind of a a much more uh, atypical output than DITA to PDF or something, but that's something that's very, very important for you, then that does have a lot of impact on maybe how you're writing and structuring your data content. So it's, it mm-hmm. goes, it cuts both ways and you can't just, uh, you know, take 
one particular method or standard of writing your data content and then say, this is going to work across the board for PDF and HTML and Word, PowerPoint, InDesign, whatever. You have to think about which outputs are the most important to us and then what needs to be in our data content model to support that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on top of that, I would say the last thing on testing or um, trying to come up with your estimates, and we've hit on this a number of times already in here, is just that there are differences across platforms, there are differences across tools. And if you're going to be using a number of different ones, um, you're going to be using several different platforms, you have to make sure that's part of your testing plan. And you have to also plan for that in your time to know that you'll have to add extra time to build in those accommodations for those other platforms. Absolutely. So I think, you know, kind of to wrap things up, our, uh, our final parting words of advice would be something along the lines of these unusual outputs can do a lot of really cool and interesting things for you, and they might satisfy some really important business requirements, but it comes with the caution of, you know, plan ahead, really, really think about the considerations as you would do with anything content-wise before you go ahead with those types of outputs. Well, thank you so much, Simon, for joining sure. me today. And thank you for listening to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. For more information, visit scriptorium.com or check the show notes for relevant links. Mm -hmm.